Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. You honor us by finding us and listening in. We pray this sermon stirs up your love for Jesus and grows you in your faith. But before we begin, we ask that you not let this podcast, or any podcast for that matter, replace the local church in your life. You need to be a member of a local congregation and under the shepherding of that flock's pastor. So please become part of a local church if you aren't currently. If you'd like more information about our church, please go to www.mountzionchula.org. Enjoy our podcast. This evening. Okay. Well, we'll get, we'll pray, and then we'll get started. Let's pray. Father, I come to you, and I thank you for this time, and I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for... Um, a faith that has answers. And Lord, I, I pray that now as we talk about these questions that you will give us understanding of your word and Lord, that you would grow us in our faith and that Lord, you would strengthen us. Um, we pray for our fellowship very shortly and that you will bless that and be with our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. started I sent the list of questions for tonight to a group of friends of mine that from seminary we are um, we're, we're all in churches now we're all in uh, uh, pastors at churches and I sent the list to them and um, they, they asked me how on earth are you going to answer all those in an hour um, but we really have about the same as last time and I finished last time in an hour um, one of them said I could literally preach an entire sermon on every one of those questions um, but we're going to give it a shot um, we have nine questions. Um, one was submitted after church today, but but as I sat down to look over it this afternoon, I told the person, I don't think I'm going to be able to fit in another one. So I'll, I'll talk to you about yours um, uh, another time. But um, thank you to all who submitted questions for tonight. Uh, I purposefully do it anonymously so that you can submit questions um, that, that you're not going to have to fear what someone else might think of that question. Um, you, you're allowed to ask questions about our faith, and God isn't upset with you for asking um, I did this in 2021, probably going to do it every other year. Um, I don't know if we'll have the amount of questions that we need to do it every year, unless I'm wrong on that. But um, let's get going on the questions, and then we'll have soup afterwards. I told my friends I'm just going to lay it all on the table tonight, um, because there are several questions that were asked that um, my answer to them may not be what you believe. Um, and that's okay, because um, I'm just saying that based on knowing um, you know, Christian culture in this area and what the majority of people believe um, and, and at least three of these questions um, probably don't line up with, with, with the cultural answer around here. Um, that's okay. Those um, issues I'm referring to are third-level issues, and we can love each other despite our disagreements. Um, and so we're going to get started. So, Chris, if you'd bring up the first question. There we go. Where was Jesus for the three days between his death and resurrection? Um, we don't know for certain. Um, there's actually a sequel coming out next year um, to the Passion of the Christ film. Um, it's supposed to be coming out next year. It may get moved around the way movies do, but coming out next year, and, and in this movie, apparently Jesus is going to be going to the land of the dead to preach to all the dead people, which is we're going to get into is not where he was. <laughs> but that's what they're doing with the sequel to the Passion of the Christ. There's three possibilities biblically on where Jesus was um, between his death and resurrection. Um, two of them, I think, have a biblical case. One of them, not so much. Um, so we'll do the one that's not so much first. Some people say he went to hell. He went to hell for those three days. Uh, he was cru uh, Actually, there's an old creed in the church called the Apostles' Creed. Um, it actually teaches that. It says he was crucified, dead, and buried, and he descended to hell, and he, on the third day he rose. Now, I can profess that creed without believing he went to hell because he experienced hell on the cross. When he died on the cross, God was pulling, pouring out his full wrath on Jesus, and that's what, that's what hell is. Some believe he went to hell to get beat up by the demons for three days um, so that he could suffer for us. Um, there's actually, um, they don't do them too much anymore, but when I was a teenager, um, it was pretty common to have a 
haunted house at Halloween time at churches called a hell house. Um, they did judgment houses too. Judgment houses were more of like a play that you walk through. Um, my hometown had what was called a hell house. And literally you go through a haunted house that's themed like hell, like you're in hell in the, in the haunted house. And at the end of one of them, you got to the very end and the demons are beating up Jesus and that's how they preach the gospel to you. And um, that, that's just not what was happening. Some believe he went to the land of the dead to preach the gospel to dead people, kind of along the same lines as going to hell, but um, I don't believe he went to hell to suffer for us. Why would he need to? Hell is not primarily about flames and screams. It's, it's about the wrath of God being poured out on us for eternity. Demons certainly don't get to beat up on you while you're there. They are under the same wrath. They're suffering as well. Pop culture tells you that Satan you know, has a throne in hell. That he gets to sit on a throne and reign the place. Why would God give the devil a place of authority? He'll suffer in hell too. Jesus experienced in six hours on the cross what sinners will experience in hell for all of eternity. God's wrath poured out. He cried out at the end of his crucifixion, It is finished. And then he died. If he still has to go to hell and suffer, it's not finished. It's finished when he dies. People point to 1 Peter chapter 3 to say that he went to hell. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. Um, it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. But pay attention to the orders of, that, of those words in that passage. That's part of good Bible study. Pay attention to the order of the words. Um, let me read it again. Um, Christ was put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit, and then he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. When did Jesus go and proclaim to the spirits in prison right there? Well, after he was made alive. He was put to death. He was made alive. He went and proclaimed. Uh, another thing we note about that is that the Greek word there for proclaim, there's two words in Greek that mean to um, preach or proclaim. Um, the first one is evangelizo, um, which is to proclaim good news, to announce good news. Um, the angels do that at Christmas time. They proclaim good news of great joy. Um, the other one is caruso. Caruso simply means to announce news. Like, you know, I'm just telling you this. Um, evangelizo is to proclaim it in such a way where people can become part of it. Caruso is just to pronounce it, to, to announce that it happened. Caruso is what is used here. He announced the news to the spirits in prison. So this passage is not as weird as it sounds. The, the least weird interpretation of a passage is usually the right one. And what happens? He dies, he rises again, and he announces to the spirits in prison what? You've been defeated, and I've won. This is not about Jesus going to proclaim uh, to dead people and give them a second chance to repent. This is Jesus proclaiming to the demons that they have lost. This is the announcement of victory. The king has won. As Jesus ascends to heaven, sits at his father's right hand, he announces to the powers of hell they have no chance of ever winning again. So that's the one that people say could be where he's at. I think that's wrong. It's possible Jesus went to heaven during those three days. Um, the last two of these, I think there's a biblical argument for both of them. Um, the argument that he went to heaven is that he told the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Um, but I, I don't know if he was speaking literally like this moment you're gonna, we're going to be there together or if it was kind of a pronouncement of today this is certain, we're going to be there. But since Jesus was living our life and dying our death, it would make sense that he experienced death the same way we experience it. Our soul goes to be with God. Our body goes in the ground until such time as our resurrection comes. So it's very possible that's what happened. The other possibility is that Jesus simply rested in the tomb. He just simply rested there. The reason that is so compelling is that Jesus was beginning a new creation project. He was, remember, seven days is what it took to create the universe. Seven days is what it took to create the new heavens and new earth. And what happened? A seven-day project started on Palm Sunday, ends on um, uh, Holy Saturday, with the eighth day being when the creation begins. Um, at the end of day six, God was finished with his first creation. He rested on the seventh day. That's how the first creation began, and that's how new creation begins, maybe. God rested. After he cried, it is finished, 
just as he did with the first creation, he rested. Jesus was in the tomb um, not, not three days and three nights. He was there for a few hours Friday, all day Saturday, and a few hours early Sunday morning, and then he rose. New creation dawned when Jesus rose from the dead. So it's very possible he just rested there. He was dead, but he was resting. There's actually a wonderful song about this by Andrew Peterson called God Rested, um, about that, about him resting on the Sabbath after he died. You should look it up and listen to it. I listen to it every Saturday before Easter. I don't know which one of these is correct. Um, the Bible never plainly tells us. Depending on the day, I might say he was in heaven or that he was resting. But th there are questions in Scripture we can infer the answer to, but we don't get to know more about something than the Bible does. That's very important when Bible reading. You don't get to know more than the Bible tells you. Next question. Are Catholics Christians? So we have to differentiate here between Catholic doctrine and Catholics themselves. Um, are there people that go to Catholic church that are born-again Christians? Absolutely. Probably a lot of them. There was a girl in my BCM in college that was, her name was Suzanne. She was a very committed Catholic, but she was also born again. She believed the gospel, and she was on mission with us and very committed to that. Um, but she, she understood that salvation was by grace through faith in Christ. But is the Catholic Church itself Christian? That's more of a sticky situation. Because it comes down to the question, do they affirm or deny that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? And very often, that's not the case. I actually did some Google searching on if Catholics believe this or not, and the result I got was from Catholic.com, I guess the official website of the Catholic faith. Um, there was a question and answer page, and the question that was asked was, why does the Roman Catholic Church teach the doctrine of works righteousness, that through good works you can earn salvation? And their answer was, the Catholic Church has never taught such a doctrine, and in fact, has constantly condemned the notion that men can earn or merit salvation. Catholic salvation theology is rooted in apostolic tradition and scripture and says that it is only by God's grace, completely unmerited by works, that one is saved. And they had a lot longer answer than that, but they actually quoted the Council of Trent, which is a famous Catholic council in the 1500s. Let me give you another quote from the Council of Trent. If anyone says that by faith alone the impious is justified, and in such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain justification, and that is not in any way necessary that he is be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema. That word means damned. So let me sum that up. If you believe faith alone justifies you, you should be damned. That's what the Council of Trent said. If, if, if it's really true that Catholics don't teach works righteousness, why can we observe so many practices and beliefs and histories that say otherwise. When I was on a mission trip in El Salvador, um, we were going village to village sharing the gospel, and um, we had Catholic priests trying to run us out of there because we were teaching salvation by grace through faith in Christ, and they're saying, no, that's not right. You've got to do all these other things. In, anybody we shared the gospel with, they had this false understanding that they could never really know if they were saved or not because how do they know they've done enough? How do they know they've asked repentance enough times? How do they know they've been to the priest enough times? Let me show you a short clip. I just think this sums it up really well. Chris, go ahead and this is like a minute clip.
All right, Chris, you can hit next. It just plays on a loop for some reason when you use this program. Um, so I think that sums it up really well, and I like the little graphic. That's from a documentary, American Gospel. We watched it as a church back in 2019. But um, I think it sums it up really well. There are clear teachings in the Catholic theology that completely corrupt the gospel. Um, Catholicism started out well. Um, many of the early church fathers that have greatly influenced um, Christianity t today um, were Catholic. But over the generations, it got corrupted. And that's what Martin Luther was fighting against when he, when he started the Reformation. The, the Catholic Church had gotten so corrupt that he, um, that he called them out on it, and they excommunicated him, and that's how Protestantism started. Um, not every Catholic Church is like those, but they all descended from them. Why is this the case? Because every religion in the world is a works-based salvation other than biblical Christianity. The devil knows salvation is by God's mercy alone, so he wants nothing more than to deceive you into thinking you can earn it and not rest in God's mercy at the cross of Christ. And literally every culture on the planet has their own flavor of works-based righteousness. And Jesus died on the cross to show the whole world that they don't need that. They need him. Next question. <clears throat> How do we handle the ending of the Gospel of Mark? If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 16. If you grab a pew Bible if you don't have your Bible, because it's going to be important for this question. <clears throat> Mark 16. So what this um, question is referring to, unless you have a King James Version, your Bible probably says in Mark 16, um, above verse 9, or in a footnote connected to verse 9, that some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. What does that mean? Well, so think about it like this. Mark wrote his gospel in, you know, 50 AD, and uh, we don't have that original copy. It's, been, it's no longer with us, but over time it was copied, the church copied it and copied and copied it and copied it so that it was passed down through the generations and so we have I think the earliest manuscript we have of Mark is somewhere around 300, 400 AD um, and it stops at verse 8 that's where it ends later copies of it you know like 700 AD contain verses 9 through 20 um, the reason the King James probably doesn't have this note is that the King James was translated off of those manuscripts from like 700 that had these but after the King James was, was translated and all the new translations were made, we, we found the earlier copies, the ones from 300, and it didn't have verses 9 through 20. And so what is that about? Does, um, the, the question comes down to, did Mark, by the Holy Spirit's inspiration, write verses 9 through 20, or did someone add that in later? That's the question, because uh, Bible scholars kind of throw that back and forth of did uh, Mark write it or not, um, and so, um, so, so we look at those manuscripts, and every manuscript we have from as far back as we can go stops at verse 8. But, but a lot of manuscripts later on have it. it Bible scholars kind of theorize it kind of looks like somebody was reading Mark 16, and, they, and verse 8 is a really weird ending for it. And so they brought together the other Gospels and, 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 and made an ending for it to make it have a little bit of a better ending on it. Um, we don't really know which one happened. We're going off of um, translations and, and things like that. Um, there are just a few things to note about this. Let, let, me, let me actually just read the chapter so that you can hear what we're talking about. Um, Mark 16, I'm just going to read verses 1 through 20. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is gone before that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. 
And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they, are nothing, they, they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. All right, the earliest manuscripts of Mark stop right there. Later manuscripts include the rest. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had, that, that had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form of, to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Now, it would make sense um, that um, someone would be reading verses 1 through 8, if that's where it ends, if that's where Mark ended it, it would make sense that somebody would read that and they'd say, ah, that's a really weird ending. We need to put a bow on the end of this. The question is, did that happen? Um, Bible scholars aren't sure. Different Bible scholars say different things. But just some things to note as to why they would say such a thing. And I'll let you figure out what you want regarding it. But um, um, first of all, um, it feels like 9 through 20 is written by somebody else. You know, you can read um, a work, let, let's say, I don't know, John Grisham wrote a novel, and somebody else wrote the final page, and somebody that doesn't write like John Grisham, and you read his novel, and you got to the last page, and you're like, that just felt like something other than John Grisham. Um, it feels like Mark is not the writer of 9 through 20. It seems completely of a different writing style. Here's why. Mark is the shortest gospel, but Mark includes, like, every detail imaginable in the stories he tells. So like when I tell a story, I'm very short and sweet and to the point. Um, you know, the other day I went to Walmart and bought groceries. That's the story. There's some people that when they tell a story, they got to include every detail in that story. You know, the other day I got up, made me some coffee, cooked me some bacon, scrambled me an egg, ate all that up, went back, took a shower, got dressed, Took off down the road, had to take 41 instead of the interstate because traffic was bad. That one new country music song came on the radio, and I listened to it. And 10 minutes later, they're finally at Walmart telling you the story, right? That's how Mark tells his stories. He includes every single detail as he tells stories. Well, you get to 9 through 20, and he just kind of blows through it all. Like, it's just a really quick summary. Also, 9 through 20 has some weird theology particularly verse 18, they're going to pick up serpents and they're going to drink deadly poison and not hurt them. All right, maybe that's something Christians do, but I, I've never snake handled before. Um, but, but I suppose you could justify snake handling by verse 18. Um, but third and finally, um, 16.8, the way it ends, they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. That seems like that would be an abrupt ending until you read the whole Gospel of Mark. And in the Gospel of Mark, every time Jesus does a miracle or every time he says something crazy um, that, that you know, is from God, people respond in fear and trembling or in astonishment and awe every single time. Mark, um, I've got every reference here, but for time's sake, I'm not going to read them all. Um, Every time Jesus does something or says something in Mark, people fall back with their mouth open, either in wonder and terror. So what else would happen when they get to the tomb and Jesus isn't there? And it ends on this way as a question to the reader, what are you going to do with the resurrected Jesus? What are you going to do with him? So I don't know what we do with 9 through 20. Maybe Mark wrote it, maybe he didn't. Um, I think there's, a good or there, there's good things to think about regarding verse 8 being the ending. If it turns out that's 
not it. If, if it turns out snake handling was something we do, I guess we'll just say, Lord, sorry we didn't do snake handling at Mount Zion Baptist Church. But, um, but, but that's just kind of the things we have to work through in regards to that section of the Bible. Um, next question. Does Jesus care that Georgia is the best college football team? Um, I am not an expert. I am not an expert on Georgia football, so I can neither confirm nor deny that Georgia is the best college football team. Um, but let's take a moment to talk about this, because this is not just a silly question. There, there's actually good answers to this question. Um, does Jesus care who the best football team is? Your guess to that answer might actually be no. Uh, he's got more important things to worry about. But there's a very famous quote by a theologian named Abraham Kuyper um, where he said, There is not one square inch in the whole domain over human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign, does not cry out, Mine. There is not one square inch over which, uh, of all of human existence, that Christ does not cry out, Mine. And that would include football. And that would include baseball, and it would include my hobby of being a moviegoer, and it would include your pets, and it would include your vacation and your school extracurricular activities and the newspaper and when you brush your teeth and shopping and cooking and cleaning your house and driving down the interstate and every other part of every moment of your life. Jesus looks at it and he says, that's mine. I own it. I'm the king of the universe. There is not a sacred and a secular we often compartmentalize our lives like that. Jesus is my focus when I'm at church and in my devotional life, but he's got very little part of the rest of my day-to-day -day life. You must rethink your life. Christ is in every part of your life. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And whatever you do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. So that would mean be a football fan in the name of the Lord Jesus. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So be a football fan to the glory of God. Use your brain to know how every part of your life can be done to the glory of God. I'm not a sports fan. I don't keep up with sports. I'm, uh, sometimes I, I notice how off, I, I can be off put by how sometimes sports fans um, turn sports into an idol. Um, there's a lot of similarities between an altar and a stadium. There just is. But then I'm convicted in the next second of how much thought life I give to something like Star Wars. Because as, as a Star Wars fan, I don't just watch the movies. Like I watch the TV shows and I read the books and the comics and, and all that stuff. So the question comes at, how do you take things like sports and Star Wars and hobbies and chores and everything else and do them to the glory of God? Well, let me give you just a few examples of how I do it. And, and then you take these principles and you take this, these ideas and use it in your life. So I've, as I said, I'm a moviegoer. I see a lot of movies. Um, it's my hobby. It's one of the ways I decompress. Um, and when I watch a movie, I'm not just being entertained. I'm not just turning my brain off and just, you know, relaxing. Um, I, I'm also thinking about the story that I'm watching. Because the fact is God is a storytelling God. And we exist in God's story. So whatever storytellers try, whether they try or not, they're telling stories that come out of God's story because they exist in it. They live in God's story. So I look at movies that I watch, and I watch for God's story. And I've walked out of the movie theater before many times in awe and worship of God. And I wasn't seeing a Christian movie when it happened. So when I saw The Greatest Showman, I walked out of the theater um, just thinking, don't try to gain the whole world and lose your soul in the process, because that's the theme of that movie. You know, when I watch Top Gun Maverick, like themes, there, there's themes of leadership and boldness and being an excellent citizen in that movie. When you see movies like Finding Nemo in a Quiet Place, it challenges you to be a godly father. So I look for God's story in the movies I see, and I worship him when I see them. What about exercise? You know when I least want to exercise? When I see it as just something I have to do. I just got to do this because if I don't, I'll, you know, get heart disease or something. But I have to remind myself that God put Adam in the garden. Well, actually, I'm reading a different answer. Um, when I'm most motivated to exercise, 
is when I remind myself that God has given me a body and I should take care of it to his glory. And the better my health is, the better servant, the better husband, the better father, the better pastor I will be. What about chores? I hate yard work and I hate cleaning house. I just hate both those things. Maybe some of you would agree with me on that. Amen. Thank you. There's a million things I'd rather do than clean up pine cones from my yard and sweep my kitchen. Just a million things I'd rather do than that. But I have to remind myself that God put Adam in a garden and told him to keep it and take care of it. And that must be my motivation to take care of the garden that he's given me, even if I'd rather not do those things. So if you're a football fan, I I don't know if Jesus' favorite team is the Georgia Bulldogs. I anticipate it's probably the WKU Hilltoppers. but, um, But you should enjoy being a football fan, and you should also watch football to the glory of God. So think theologically, think Christian about how can I glorify God in being a football fan? And also ask, how can I glorify God in everything I do? Don't live your life on autopilot, just doing things because you have to do them. Ask yourself, how do you glorify God in the midst of that? Next question. What does the Bible say about cremation? Um, At least in my memory, cremation used to not be as common um, when I was a kid. Um, I can remember going to a funeral home as a kid and getting there to learn that the deceased had been cremated, and it was weird because the urn wasn't out. Like, it wasn't out there. There was no body. Like, it it wasn't sitting on a table or something while everyone hung out in the funeral home. Like, Like, there was just people hanging out in the lobby of a funeral home, and it was... Kind of like showing up to a movie theater and no movie being shown. I'm like, what are we doing here? It's a lot more common today, though. It's still uncommon here in the South. Um, Of the ten least common states for cremation, seven of them are southern states. Uh, Georgia and Kentucky both are in those seven that that it's least common to get cremated in. Um, According to the Cremation Association of North America, 59% of deaths in the U.S. in 2022 were cremated. 59% of people who died last year were cremated. The projection is that it will be 65% in 2027. Why? Well, for some, it's it's simply that there's not enough space to be buried. Um, You'd never expect, but but, but Florida is actually over 71% cremation. In Florida, over 70% of people get cremated. Why? Well, you would expect that to not be the case. I think we associate getting buried with, you know, conservative states, and we know that Florida's conservative, but the landscape in Florida has very little places to bury. It's, it's you know, there's a lot of marsh there, there's a lot of beach, and there's just not a lot of places to have um, cemeteries. Um, Hawaii is another state with high cremation rates, 76%, because there's not a ton of land there. You don't have a ton of places to bury people. But the big reason, at least when I talk to people in here, is the the big reason people cremate is because of the high cost of funerals. Um, It's insane how expensive funerals are. Um, A funeral in the U.S. costs somewhere between $7,000 to $12,000, and that's not including cemetery, tombstone, or flowers. A cremation costs between $6,000 and $7,000, and you don't have to have a, a, a grave plot after that. So you're looking at saving $5,000 if you cremate. But should you get cremated? That's the question being asked here, I think. Um, I can't give you a Bible verse that says, thou shalt not be cremated, or cremation is completely fine. Neither one is is in Scripture. Um, But I can offer some principles from Scripture and from church history as to whether or not you should get cremated. Um, I don't think it's a sin to get cremated. But let me give you a thought to chew on. The historic practice of Christians has been to bury their dead. The whole idea of burial has Christian imagery in it, whether intended to or not. Um, The body goes into the ground and it awaits the day that Jesus returns and the resurrection happens. On that day, bodies in the grave are going to rise just as Jesus did. You will will not be a soul, a primordial soul forever. You will have a body joined with your soul forever. So when we bury a body of a Christian in the ground, we are proclaiming to those living that the body's going to rise again. 
When I pray at a graveside, I always say we commit this body to the ground until such time that the graves are opened at the last day. That's part of my prayer. And so, but can't God raise ashes? Can't he raise the ashes up? Sure. And he, and he will. If a Christian gets cremated, God will raise their ashes and form them back into a body. However, the art of burning the, the dead is actually more of a pagan practice. Uh, pagans believed your life essence was transferred into the afterlife through your body being burned. Eastern religions today, people like Hinduism, um, they place their dead on a funeral pyre and burn them. It's connected to reincarnation. Um, reincarnation, you, you turn the body back into dust that it, be, that it came from so that it can be born again from the earth. Um, atheism is a, why, why would you not get cremated if you're an atheist? If we really are just dust particles on the grand scheme of the universe, then why would we bother burying people? That's just taking up land that we could be using for a lot better things. So understand, if you're a Christian, every part of your life should proclaim the gospel to others, including what's done with your body when you die. So you just have to ask yourself, what story do you want your dead body to tell? Like, I want to be buried when I die because it proclaims to those at my funeral. It's one more time to proclaim the gospel to the people at my funeral that I will rise again when Jesus comes. It's not a sin to be cremated. There's no verse that says that. But if you were to ask me, I would counsel a person to get buried rather than cremated because it proclaims a better story. Next question. What is predestination and how does it correlate with free will? I think this question was asked last time we did this, but we'll answer it again. Um, the Bible teaches a doctrine that um, many fail to understand called predestination. So what is it? What, what is it? Because there's a, about 14 different opinions on what it is. Um, let me just read you a few verses where, it, where, where we see it at. Romans 8.29 those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to him as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. The, the idea is there, so we have to ask, what is it? What does it mean? Um, let me just give you a definition. Predestination, in its simplest terms, is the belief that before God had even created the universe, he had already chosen who, was gonna, who he was going to save. Now, we have to nuance that definition because a lot of people get heated about this. We have to nuance it. The first time I learned about this idea was in my high school history class. I don't even think I was a Christian yet. Um, I was taught in high school that there was a small movement of people in American history who believed in predestination. That, and, and the way they described it was basically every human being who was ever going to live was in a bag before creation. And God just kind of, you know, reached in and grabbed one out and threw him into heaven and threw the other into hell and heaven and hell. And that's how he did it. And once he ran out of people, he was done. And I was taught that nobody outside this group believed such a thing in history. And it died away in a couple generations. And it's absolutely right. Nobody believed in that in, in history. Because a lot of, uh, th that's not what it is. Um, a lot of people in history from the first century to our modern day believed in predestination. And that's not what it was. Most people in Baptist history believed in predestination. That's why there's a denomination called Free Will Baptist. So what is it? Well, the fact is the Bible teaches two things that seem to contradict. It does that a lot with theology. And if with this issue, it's predestination and human choice. Two things that seem to contradict, but they're both taught in Scripture. Predestination, we read Ephesians 1.5, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself. Um, adoption always involves the parent choosing the child first, not the other way around. Um, but the child has to be open to being adopted. Um, they have to be willing. If a child is in an orphanage and is about to be adopted by parents but runs away from the orphanage the night before the parents get there, the adoption won't happen. So you have, one, you have predestination, then you have human choice. Matthew 23, 37. 
Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Jesus says, Jerusalem, I want to save you people, but you don't want it. So how do you balance those two things? Well, I, I tend to call it human uh, free choice, human responsibility, not free will. Free will is a philosophical term that really wasn't in Christian theology before philosophy became a thing. Um, human responsibility, fr free choice, um, we're slaves to sin before we're saved. We can make our own choices. We're not puppets on a string. But, but Jesus says everyone who sins is a slave to sin, John 8, 34. That is, sin is our master. We do exactly what he tells us to do. We love him as our master before we're saved. This, this idea is picked up in Romans 6. and that, This idea of predestination, um, you, you can't deny it's so many places and stories in the Bible. Like Abraham was not a deacon at his church. He was a pagan in a pagan land. And God came to him and said, go, go from your land and go, go to the place that I'm going to, uh, go, go where, where, where I'm going to tell you. He just identified Abraham and he said, go. Israel was not a Christian parachurch organization. J Jacob was a conniving deceiver. And God chose him and put his love on him and said that he would choose him outside of any nation on the planet. He chose Israel. Saul of Tarsus was not at a revival where he responded to an altar call. He was on the way to kill Christians. And Jesus appeared to him and said, you're mine. Go, go be my witness. He chose Saul, and he didn't ask Saul's permission to do so. What about the book of life? We often say that when a person gets saved, their name gets added to the Lamb's book of life in heaven. But Revelation 13.8 says, All who dwell on earth will worship the beast, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the Lamb's book of life. If you're going to get saved, your name is already in the Lamb's book of life. That's what Revelation 13 says. So the question is, how can it be possible that God predestines people but we freely choose to receive the gospel as well. Well, it works like this. All are born predestined for hell. That's the trajectory that we're on from the moment we come out of our mother's womb. We're running headlong toward the gates of hell, and it's exactly what we want. God did not predestine us to hell. We do it ourselves. We do it simply by being born hell-bent sinners. Some theologians believe God predestined us for hell. I don't. It's called double predestination. I, I don't believe that. However, before time began, God chose, because he's above time, he's not bound by time, he, he can see all things at the same time. Before creation, God chose that he would save some off the trajectory toward hell. He chose that he would adopt some people off that path, and he destined them to that. So how, how did people, how did he choose those people? We don't know. We don't know. Some would say he looked down through the path of history and he saw every person who would choose him and he chose them. But I don't think that's the case. First John 4 says we love because he first loved us. If he loved us in response to us loving him, he didn't love us first. All of this being said, it will never happen that a person who desires salvation cannot get it because they're not chosen. All people who come to Jesus wanting salvation will get it. And opposite of that, Scripture gives no indication that the people in hell regret being there. They're in absolute misery, yet they still choose that misery. They have no desire to repent. They love their sin, and they love running from God. And that's what hell is. It's the reality of being eternally miserable apart from Jesus. So how did your salvation work bringing these two ideas together because that, a lot of these questions we're talking about and a lot of Christian theology is trying to figure out how two opposing ideas in the Bible work together. The, the fact that you were a slave to sin, you were owned by your master, at some point you heard the gospel preached to you, and in that moment the Holy Spirit opened the prison doors of your cell, and he showed you the glories of Jesus, showed you how beautiful he is. He shined the light of the gospel into your heart, and he said, come have a better master. And you made the choice to get up and walk out of the prison cell. That's how it worked. God did not force you to come. He just showed you a more beautiful and more lovely master than the one that you had. And you realized by the Holy Spirit that you would have been foolish to not come. John 8, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. It's kind of like lighting a match. If I light a match, have the little box and the match, 
I take my hand and I hold the match and I strike it. And the flame opens. If I just take the match and wave it around in the air, it's not going to light. And if I just set the match on the little strip and sit there and wait, it's never going to light. It's got to be both. I have to take it and I have to strike it and it lights. God's sovereignty and our choice together light the match. This doctrine, this idea, it's often an area of controversy for Christians. It's not meant to be. It's meant to be a great comfort. If you're saved, God chose you. He didn't choose you because of anything within you. Deuteronomy 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people on the planet that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loves you. It's not because you were special. It's nothing. It's not that you were less evil than other people or not because you deserved it, not because of anything. The Lord loves you because he loves you. That's the reason the Bible gives you. He loves you because he loves you. If your salvation is based on his love, you have great comfort and great hope that he's never going to stop loving you. Next question. I think we have three more. We have 13 minutes. Let's, let's hustle. What is the best book of the Bible to read first? Um, that's a great question. Um, let, let me first commend you for wanting to take the habit up of reading the Bible. Um, it's, it's, most important, it's the most important thing you do in your Christian life. Um, I think what I would say is don't, don't read it start to finish the first time. That's what most people try to do, and that's why they fail. Um, they'll, they'll read Genesis. They'll get through the first 20 chapters of Exodus, and then it just goes off the rail. It's arranged like a book, but just understand that it's, it's, it, each book of the Bible is a book in itself. Um, so you aren't necessarily, it's not like a novel where if you, if you were to open up to the middle and start reading, you're like missing all of this. Um, it, it's, it's, each book is its own thing. Um, and so you can start in the middle or you can start in the, in the you know, third, third of the book or whatever and, and, and you know, follow along with what's happening. So my encouragement um, if you're trying to start reading the Bible, is start with the New Testament. Um, probably start with one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. I would say Mark or John. Um, Mark is the most simple of the Gospels. John is written for the new reader. Um, that, that's what he says at the end of his Gospel. This is written so that you might believe in Jesus. Um, and after reading the Gospels, read some of the letters. Um, some of the simple letters of the Bible are 1 John and Philippians and Ephesians and James and First and Second Peter. They're all good ones to start with. Read the New Testament and read it well. You can get to the Old Testament. The Old Testament's wonderful and there are, there's so much in it, but for the new reader of the Bible, it's, it's more difficult. Um, I've been reading the Bible every day for probably 15 years. I still have trouble with about a third of the books in the Old Testament. Um, it's farther back in time. There's a lot more cultural things you have to figure out. Um, there, there's a lot of it you'll read and you'll think, why did I need to know that? But, but the New Testament is written for Christians. It's written for, um, it, it's written, I mean, all the Bible's written for us, but, but especially us Christians, the New Testament's written for us. Um, and much of it at face value, all of it's practical, but at face value, the New Testament's a lot, is very practical. So I'd say start with Mark or John, read the life of Jesus, see how wonderful he is, and go from there. Don't feel like you have to read at some particular pace. Um, you don't have to read one chapter a day or three chapters a day or anything like that. Just read it. Currently, I, I read the Bible at no particular pace. I just read until I'm fed every morning. Sometimes that happens in five verses. Sometimes it happens in five chapters. But I just read until, until I have something to hold to and something to pray through. I'd love to talk with you more about that tonight. If you're trying to get started reading the Bible and you need more help, talk to me tonight afterwards. Um, next question. <coughs> if a family member is not a Christian, and I am, will we consciously know they are not in heaven since there's no sadness in heaven? Uh, that's a sobering question. Um, because who of us don't have family or friends that have died lost? And some, some who aren't saved now, and if nothing changes, they, they, they won't be saved when they die. Uh, we, we don't often think about this when, when somebody dies, and we shouldn't when somebody dies. It's not encouraging when, when somebody dies and you're trying to mourn. But um, that, Because at a funeral, you know, everybody's a 
good saint who's in heaven, even though we, we know in the back of our mind it's, it's not really true. Um, and we know there's no sadness in heaven, so um, will we know our lost loved ones are in hell? Um, and if we do, how can we possibly be happy knowing they're suffering God's wrath for all of eternity? Um, I believe we'll know they're in hell for several reasons. Um, first, God is not just going to wipe them from our memory, like, you know, like make us no longer remember, you know, Uncle Jimmy or whatever. Um, he, he's not gonna, just going to wipe them from our memory. That would be as bad as knowing that they're in hell, wouldn't it? And it, if you didn't know, if you didn't know if they were in hell, but you still remember that they were a person, you'd like, you'd spend all eternity searching for them in heaven. You never find them. You know, you'd be like, man, this is a big place. I can't find my cousin. He, he doesn't have his location on and his iPhone, and I don't know where he is, and uh, he's got to be here somewhere. We have to remind ourselves that our view of heaven is very often not the Bible's view of heaven. Our view of heaven is usually that it's just a reunion with all of our deceased loved ones in a place where we have no more pain. And those things will be there, and praise the Lord, those things will be there. But it, Jesus is usually an afterthought when people describe heaven. I, I've been to so many funerals that where I've heard that, you know, he's back with our mom. But less often do I hear he's, he's with Jesus. It's not a thing that heaven is where all the good people go and hell is where all the bad people go. Heaven is where all the people who love Jesus go. If you didn't deeply love Jesus on earth, heaven will not be fun for you. It's all about Jesus. Hell is where all the people go who rejected Jesus. If you reject Jesus on earth, God gives you exactly what you want for all of eternity. People go to hell and they don't regret being there. So it's not just horrible people who end up in hell. It's not just Hitler who ends up in hell. Sometimes it's your high school best friend or your neighbor down the road. So how do we cope with that? You know, very often we have such a small view of sin. We, we view sins like abortion is really bad. But sins we, we, but the sins we think of as little that, that our loved ones commit, we really easily overlook those like gossip or gluttony or temper or complaining or things like that. You know, our grandma ha has a spirit of complaining and we ignore it by saying, you know, she just tells it how it is. That we need more people like that. And since we overlook those things, we expect that God should overlook those things. They aren't that big of a deal in our mind, but they are. God's holiness is a very big deal, and when we sin, whether it's big or small, we oppose his holiness no matter what the sin is. When we sin, we sin against his holiness. You know this is how it works, don't you? The bigger the person we do something against, the bigger the consequences, right? You know, if I walked up to a random guy on the streets in downtown Tifton and smacked him in the face... He might, you know, bring up some assault charges, and if there was no people to see it, I might be able to get my way out of it. You know, I might get, you know, 10 days in jail or something, but if I walked up to a police officer in Tipton and smacked him in the face, I'd be in jail for a while. If I walked up to the president and smacked him in the face, you know, Secret Service would take me out. So if you walk up to an eternal God and smack him in the face, no matter how hard the smack is, what kind of punishment is deserved? Eternal punishment. Our loved ones who have died and gone to hell, people who die and go to hell deserve that. But in our sinful state here on earth, that doesn't, that, we don't see sin as that big of a deal, so that doesn't sit well with us. When we're in heaven and we reach perfection, when we're saved, we're, we're, we, will become, um, we, we will become perfect. We will reach perfection when we're in heaven. Um, we, we will finally see sin as a tremendously big deal that cannot be overlooked. So though we will mourn our loved ones going to hell, we will completely understand the righteousness and holiness of God and will know that God's justice must be carried out. Maybe we could put it like this. We will finally know how God feels to deeply love humanity but have to carry out justice. But don't think for a second we'll be sad throughout all eternity. We will finally see the glory of God. We will finally know what it's like to dwell with Christ and have perfect relationship with him. Nothing will be able to take that joy from us ever. We will have such high happiness in God that even the greatest bad news we could imagine will not steal it from us ever. But this is a sobering question. It's hard to answer. 
and, and let the fact that it doesn't sit well with you move you to action. There's only so much more time for your loved ones to receive Christ and be forgiven of their sins. Spurgeon said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. We must be moved to pray for and share our faith with our loved ones, because they will spend eternity in hell if they don't receive Christ. No matter how nice they were, no matter how much we love them, no matter how much we overlook their sin, God will not. So let us relentlessly be about trying to lead them to the Savior. <coughs> Final question. Whereas the Bible teaches the timeline of the events of the end times. That's probably on a lot of people's mind right now um, with things going on in the world. Um, let me begin this answer with a statement I always make about the end times when we talk about it. Um, we can only be so certain about things that haven't happened yet. Um, remember the Jewish people were extremely certain about what the Messiah was going to be like when he came. And when he showed up, they were so wrong they had him executed. So that's how wrong we can be about the future. So I don't go into a talk about the future with, like, you know, gung-ho certainty. Um, there's some general things we know are going to happen, and, and I, I just don't want to try to predict the details. Um, I can't draw you a timeline and tell you how various things are going to happen. I, I can give you generalities, but I'll never do what something like the Left Behind series does and give you all the details down to a time stamp. Um, first, recognize that we're in the end times. We are. We're in the end times now. That's not, a, that's not an interpretation of the headlines. That's what the Bible says. This is, the, this is the last period of human history before the end. When Peter preached his first sermon in Acts after Jesus had risen, listen to what he said. Acts 2. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my word, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be that God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. So Peter says, what you're seeing right now in Jerusalem, right after Jesus rises, all these disciples doing things, it's it's what Joel predicted that was going to happen in the last days. So we're in the end times. When we talk about the end times or the last days, we're not talking about some tiny period of history right before Jesus comes. We're talking about the entire period of time from when Jesus ascended to when he comes again. That's what the Bible talks about when it talks about the end times, the last days. As we go into this, obviously see the time, a little disclaimer, I don't have time to go into detail about every one of these things. I'm going to do a major flyover. If you have more questions about this, talk to me later. But um, so, so here's, here's what we'll do. Um, first of all, we, we know the Bible talks about signs of the end times. Or, well, we think that's what it's talking about when we read things like Matthew 24, um, Mark 14, Luke 21, um, just different things like that. Um, we, we read about those things like wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and all that. Um, I've preached Matthew 24 before. You can go back and watch those sermons online if you don't remember. But um, my, my view of Matthew 24 is that most of what's being described there um, was predicting not the end of the world but the destruction of the Jewish temple in 70 A.D. Because Jesus says that much. He says that this generation will not pass away till all these things take place. He says there, this is what it's going to be like before the temple is destroyed. You won't, there won't be any signs to determine when I'm going to come. That's what he says in, um, in the last part of 24. And so he says, stay awake because you don't know. It's going to be unexpected. It's going to be like a thief in the night. People will be eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage and, and all of that like a normal day. That's what he says. And then it will happen unexpectedly. If there's all kinds of crazy things going on in the world to point out it's about to happen, that's not unexpected. It's expected. So what has to happen before Jesus comes? I, I can think of three things. Um, first, the gospel will make it to all the nations. The gospel will be preached in all the nations. We know that 
Because in Revelation 7, when it describes everyone worshiping around the throne of God, there are people there from every tribe, people, nation, and language. So how'd they get there? They heard the gospel, they got saved. We're not talking about every geopolitical nation like France and Spain and Germany. We're talking all the way down to every tribe. Every tribe. If that's going to happen, the gospel has to get to them. And I'll just tell you, we're a long way from the gospel getting to every tribe on the planet. There's an island off the coast of India called the North Sentinel Island, and I'm fascinated by it because um, it's this tiny little island like four miles long. There's people on it, and they're like primitive. Nobody's ever able to been able to get there and, and meet them and talk to them without getting killed, speared to death. It, the gospel has to make it there. There's going to be people from that island around the throne of Jesus, and it hasn't made it there yet. Somebody's going to get there one day with the gospel and not get speared to death. Or maybe they will after they've shared the gospel. I don't know. But somebody's going to get there one day. And the other two things that have to happen, so the, uh, the gospel has to make it to all the nations. The other two things, uh, all, both in 2 Thessalonians 2, um, you can read the whole thing later, but, but it talks about, first of all, um, the, uh, the great apostasy, the great rebellion. It talks about, calls it both those things. Um, essentially, at the same time, the gospel's going to make it to all the nations. There will be a great falling away from the Christian faith worldwide. Um, you might say, that, that's happening. Look in America. Well, it's happening in America, but look at the world. Um, it, the, the people are not turning away from the faith worldwide. They're turning to the faith. In China, in Central America, in so many places, um, big, big-time revivals happening in those places. But at some point, a great apostasy will happen. People will start to turn away from the faith. And thirdly, is there in 2 Thessalonians as well, the man of lawlessness will be revealed. Um, you, you know him more commonly as the Antichrist. Um, so, something you need to know about this, 1 John 2.18, children is the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. John says, there is a final Antichrist that's coming, but there's also many Antichrists that have come along the way. There's, there's many Antichrists. There's a spirit of Antichrist in a lot of history. No doubt Hitler had the spirit of Antichrist. You read Revelation 13, which talks about the beast, which would also be the Antichrist. It's written in 96 AD. A lot of details in there. John's trying to identify to the people reading it. This is Nero the emperor. So he had the spirit of Antichrist. But there will be one final Antichrist. And he will launch a great persecution against the church. Uh, many describe it as a tribulation. Um, that, that Many would say it's seven years. I don't actually think there's much biblical evidence that it's seven years. Uh, one verse is quoted to say that it's seven years. I don't even think that's talking about the end times. But there will be a period of persecution from the Antichrist toward the church. And it will be short. Short compared to history, obviously. And then Jesus will come and rescue his people. Jesus will return. Some people believe he comes twice. Um, different people differ on that. Some people believe he comes twice, once to take the church out, once to come back and defeat the Antichrist. There's, you know, where you stand on that, I, I don't know, but um, I don't actually believe that. I think he comes once, um, and he, he comes, and he defeats the Antichrist. He rescues his people, and he saves, he remakes the world. Um, Jesus will come and usher in the end of history. He will return with all the souls of those believers who have died. He will defeat all of his enemies with the word of his mouth. He will call the living church up into the clouds, and the resurrection of the dead will occur. Bodies will come up out of the grave and be reunited with souls. And the next stage is up for debate, um, because I think there's a good biblical argument for either one of these. Um, Revelation 20 talks about a 1,000-year kingdom. It's the only place in Scripture that's talked about. Um, some people read it as a literal 1,000 years where Jesus reigns on earth after he comes. Some thinks it's talking more about a symbolic time of right now, um, that, that, we're, that, that it's leading up to the second coming. I think there's a good argument for both of those, biblically. So I'm going to just participate in whichever one happens. Um, and then comes Judgment Day. People from all generations will be judged. The lost will be sent to hell. The saved will see their salvation actualized. And finally comes the new heavens and the new earth. We don't fly away to heaven forever. God brings heaven down to earth and marries the two. And he remakes the earth to what it was supposed to be before sin entered the world. And the saved live there with Jesus forever and ever and ever the end. That's the, that's the general layout. 
So let's just do a few takeaways from that and we'll conclude. <clears throat> this is how we conclude tonight. First of all, regarding the end times, avoid speculation. Avoid speculation. Nobody gets to know more about the Bible than the Bible does about the end times. That's why I don't do all the charts. That's why I don't preach the headlines and show you where this is at in the book of Ezekiel or whatever. Like, if you read the passages about the end times and come away more impressed with the mark of the beast and, and the Antichrist, you're reading them wrong. Jesus is the hope of the end times. The devil wants nothing more than for you to be more fascinated by the mark of the beast and the coming king in the clouds. Avoid speculation like the plague. It will excite you, but it's not helpful. All it does is play on your fears. The coming of Jesus is meant to give you hope, not fear. Anytime, any type of end times teaching that is trying to play on your fears is not the teaching of Scripture. If the book of Revelation scares you, you're reading it wrong. Jesus is coming again. He is going to defeat all evil. He's going to wipe death and sadness from the planet. He's going to restore the world to what it was supposed to be. We will see his face and we will know everlasting joy forever. Take hope in that. Don't let it scare you. Take hope in that. It's our hope. Two other takeaways. First, Jesus will come unexpectedly, so be ready. Be ready. We don't know when he's coming. Always be ready. Be living a holy life, being, be pursuing your Savior, be following faithfully. Do not neglect church. Do not neglect reading your Bible and prayer. Kill sin in your life. He will come like a thief in the night. Thieves don't call you up and say, hey, I'm coming to rob you at 2.34 a.m. Be ready. No. Live a holy life. Stay awake. Be ready. Hate your sin. Repent of it. And love your Lord and pursue him. You don't know when he's coming. And finally, final takeaway. Judgment day is coming, so do so, so be on mission. The day is coming when the sheep and the goats are going to be separated. People who do not know Jesus are going to go to hell. And that is some of our family members and some of our neighbors and, the, and our coworkers and our friends and, and the waitress at Cracker Barrel and the clerk at Walmart and the attendant at Circle K. It's, it's people like that. And we must devote our lives to proclaiming Jesus to them. They have no hope outside of him. They will spend it forever and ever and ever without him. Jesus is coming soon, and there's only so much time left. So we must give our lives to proclaiming him to them. We had a lot of really good questions tonight. Um, we'll do this again in a couple of years. But um, um, there's answers to your questions. The Lord um, has answers in his word, and we can think through them and, and talk through them. Um, and so I'm going to pray for us now, and then we will proceed down to eat soup together. Um, so let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you that your word is logical, and your word has answers, and your word gives truth. Lord, I pray that you will help us to know answers to our questions and help us to know that, um, that, that you're not afraid of our questions, but you have answers for them. And so, Lord, help us to um, trust you with, with what you say. Lord, I pray for the food that we're about to eat. Bless it and nourish our bodies and be with our fellowship. And I pray, Lord, that you would um, strengthen us and help us to um, follow you faithfully, knowing that you are coming soon and we must be ready. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.